Hi, it's me again. So, we are now going into March here, and I just want to say that um, doing Black History Month was a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed searching the Black Characters tag. Um, I especially enjoyed all the Harry Potter fan fictions that we came across. Those were a lot of fun to read. Um, yeah, but um, I did want to say that uh, turns out talking about the past, um, it brings up some memories and I I shared some of those with you, of course, and uh, well, I think it was right after the fifth part, um, I kind of got this, I guess you could say, nostalgic trip, and I really wanted to revisit these movies from my childhood that I enjoyed a lot. Um, they're well, let me just explain first. So, I had this great idea that I would rent them and then I would just drink a bunch of alcohol and have a fun trip down memory lane and um, enjoy the bad CGI and all that. Well, turns out when I watch the Barbie movies, um, something happens and it, it just triggers all these different memories of the time when I was a child and, uh, going through certain things and, um, wow, I, I just, um, I, well, also, I almost drank, like, straight vodka. I put, like, so little soda in it. And just the most vodka. Because I wanted to get really fucked up. Because uh, I thought that would be fun. And um, I didn't have any fun at all. And I I actually had... Um, well, I, I don't really know the exact terminology for it. I'm no expert on these sorts of things. Um, after all, I've just been told to forget about it. For the longest time so I don't know exactly but I believe that they were flashbacks I'm sure that's the wrong word for it but uh, flashbacks nonetheless of a time when I was being verbally abused uh, by somebody who was not a family member who was a stranger to me and I was screaming and crying and just losing my fucking mind. And, um, yeah, I'm gonna be staying off the booze for a while. Um, and just generally probably not going to be talking about the past too much because, wow, does that bring up some shit. Uh, so yeah, um, not gonna be drinking for this one, unless we come across something like X-Factor. Just something completely out there and weird and, you know, something that I just can't get through sober. So, yeah. Welcome to March. It We have two different things that we can explore this month, which would be uh, St. Patrick's Day and uh, Easter. Um, I, I am particularly fond of Easter as, um, well, our, our family, they, they're religious, but like they didn't teach us kids about religion. So Easter was really just kind of like a normal holiday for us, uh, which is kind of weird because it's a very religious holiday. But, um, you know, I, I didn't know that as a kid. I, I was just like, oh, the Easter bunny. And chocolates and eggs and egg hunting. And that was fun to me. And I had a lot of fun doing that. And that was the extent of it. So, I don't know. I really like Easter. I might do some Easter-themed fan fictions. I think that would be fun. 
Um, I don't know about um, St. Patrick's Day, though. But, yeah. This is just going to be a normal episode where we just pick a random fandom and go from there. Oh my god, what are we going to get this time? Well, it's letter N. So, um, we're just going to... Ooh, there's a good amount for N. Now, some of these are in different languages, so that's kind of neat. Um, what do we get here? Knots plus crosses. TV 2020. There's only two results for that, so no. Um, Nathan Barley TV. Uh, I have to, <clears throat> I have to look this up because I've never heard of this before. Hang on. Um, what the hell have we stumbled across here, folks? It is a sitcom from 2005. Um, all I see for the, um, the artwork for this, this TV show is a very poorly rendered poster that has the words Nathan Barley in, in white text. And below that is a man with pursed duck lips, um, some aviator sunglasses, and a plaid fedora. Housegate is a metropolitan borough filled with twits, buffoons, imbeciles, guff traps, fools, dolts, nincompoops, and idiots. It's also home to webmaster Nathan Barley, who's outwardly sure he's the coolest thing going but secretly afraid he's not. And he's also convinced that someone he, because he owns a camera, has a website, and some small knowledge of internet publishing, he also has talents in that area. The first episode was aired February 11th, 2005, and the final episode was in March 18th of 2005. So this did not have a long runtime. The network was Channel 4, whatever that means. Um, I think that's all the information we have on this. So yeah, let's go back to Archive of Our Own. Alright, I need, there's 152, no, sorry, 154 results for Nathan Barley. So we have to filter these out. Hang on. Okay, I don't know about you, but I am so curious to find out what the hell this is. We are on page 7 of our results. Uh, let's just get into it. Shooting Stars by Before Clocks. Jones is fascinated by the wonders of the universe. Long Dark Night of the Soul, also by Before Clocks. Dan is searching for someone. My Lover's Bed by Before Clocks. The bed acts as a symbol to them both. Saturday Night's Alright by... <laughs> Sorry. This is going to be a Before Clocks showcase. I think this is the only person... Uh... Oh, no, there's, there's a few more. Okay. Um, early Morning, 1. Late Night, 0. The Night We Met by Before Clocks. The circumstances don't lead themselves to a lifelong friendship, but sometimes it's only a change in perspective which matters. The Mystery Writer by Mercy. Uh, this is a Black Books and Nathan Barley crossover fan fiction. It was the strangest friendship Manny had ever seen. Fuel for Thought by Cruelest Month for Thesaurus. After a particularly bad day, Dan regroups by spending time with Jones. How to Plan Your Funeral by Mercy for Slang's, Slang Smacker. Dan Ashcroft versus 2011. This kind of music by Cat Love Power. Quote, sometimes Dan wonders what Jones thinks of him. 
The Music Did by Cat Love Power, Jones Tries to Communicate, Well Bum by Deep Dark Waters, Prompt I've Been Thinking About Dan Slash Jones with Voyeuristic Nathan, maybe even filming it, but not necessarily to put on his website. DJ Booth Kissing and Secret Perving is Ashcroft. If Ashcroft is gay, then gay is cool, yeah? Landscape with Bastard Roses by Mercy. The Hall of Jones has a garden, one possible summer after a fall. Fuck Music by Therve. You run into Jones outside of the club. You get the last word by Mercy, and they saunter vaguely back towards real life. I Wondered What You Were by Mercy. The first time Dan hears Jones's music, You'd Save Me From the Aliens, also by Mercy, Just a Hotel with No Heat and Some Almost Porny Ridiculousness, Renez, France, Early 1999. These Are Our Times by Mercy, Something About an Open Window in a Hotel in Rome, August 1998, Someone Like You by Mercy, Dan and Jones' post-series with history, and the broken bits going back together, sort of. Some assembly required, also by Mercy. Dan's birthday present to Jones, May 2006. Road trip verse. Africal bonus track. And our last one, I'll learn eventually by Mercy. Quote, your arse is a Zen master, Yeah. A.K.A. Shower Porn. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, I'm going to randomize these results and get back to you. Okay, our first result is number one, which happens to be Shooting Stars by Before Clocks. This is a teen and up rating M slash M and strictly within the Nathan Barley fandom. This one is also incredibly short, so here we go. Dan? Hmm? You ever seen a shooting star? No, have you? Nah, always wanted to, though. Quite magical, I think. Suppose, if you're into that kind of thing. Oh, you're such a romantic. How did I keep off you for so long? Sarcasm will get you nowhere. Hmm, that's nice. It's clearly getting me somewhere. Don't stop. Shut it. Ellipses, ellipses... Oh, do that again. This? Ah, yes, that. Ellipses. Look, what? The sky, moron. Why the hell would I be looking at the sky? Don't matter, you've missed it. Oh no, what a terrible shame. Shut up. Ellipses. This has... Um, five kudos and no comments, sadly. All right, let's go to our next result. Our next one is number 13. Uh, Fuck Music by Therav. Uh, and this, this work could have adult content. So we're going to go ahead and proceed. The rating is explicit. M slash M and strictly within Nathan Barley fandom. Okay. You run into Jones outside of the club, in an alley where you've gone to vomit. Not from the alcohol, though you drank enough, but the words that idiotic mantra you've been shouting. They weigh in your belly, lead heavy like something you don't want to know about yourself, and the nausea comes in waves. All right, Dan, Jones says, putting a hand on your shoulder, leaning into you while you lean onto the brick wall. He's definitely been drinking, you can smell it on him. There's a bit of wet on his sleeveless t-shirt and a sloppy grin smeared across his face. You smell smoke on his fingers as he pats your jaw, as if you might need reviving. He hasn't smoked in ages, but you don't wonder why he has tonight. I'm going home, you say, and push off from the wall. I'll come with, he says, Link's arm links his arm into yours, skips a little even though you're lucky to trudge so that he's jerking your arm like a child. 
He suggests a taxi even though it's not a far walk. You don't really care, you're not paying. In the car, he sits in the middle, close to you, asks how Nathan's gig went, if the shite music got any less shite, if you didn't, sorry, it didn't, and you say so, but you don't say how you got on stage and acted like the king of all idiots. You don't mention the mind-searing embarrassment or the nausea that's washing over you. I met some friends, Jones says, head lolling on the seat back, eyes closed but facing you, as if he can see you through his pale pink lids. A smile brings cheeks to lashes. We were drowning in it, he says. Your hand is warm on the seat between your bodies, and you don't ask what it is. You look sad, Dan, he says softly, eyes open suddenly, face dark and then bright, then red or green from the lights you pass. He brings something small and shiny to his clumsy lips. It's another universe you'd call it, in another universe, you'd call it an ocarina, though you can't remember where he even heard the word. I've got a cheer-up tune. It may help. Soft, flute-like noises fill the car and the driver groans. Jones won't stop, even when you try to talk over the music. Frustrated, you snatch the thing from his hands, his mouth, so that the song ends with a half-winded flutter. Your mistake is that you didn't realize the instrument was leashed around his neck so that you've also jerked his face to yours. The smell of alcohol is strong. You imagine it thick, vi viscous, pouring out between the two of you. Oh, Jones says, hot in your face. You pass a club pounding like a heartbeat. What? You pass a club, comma, pounding like a heartbeat, comma, light strobing in his eyes, comma, so bright and clear, Oh, like they passed a club from the car? I'm confused. Anyway, just for just a second, you think he's sober. Just had to say so, he says at last. You look down. There's a hand on your thigh, and you wonder how long it's been there. You smell nice, he says into your collar. I smell like hypocrisy, you say, regretting it instantly. What a pretentious twat you are. Is that a kind of flower? he asks, breathing hot against your throat, laughing at first and then not. The hand on your thigh moves up. Uh, okay. Uh, blank. And you realize, blank. I love your hair, he says, takes, takes a bit into his mouth, tugs on it with his lips, slides a leg up over your lap, and you're surprised to find your hand behind his knee pulling it up to you. The taxi slows. All right, boys, none of that, the driver says. But before you know what's happened, Jones has thrown a small wad of notes at him, and after some hesitation, the driver doesn't complain again. Then Jones is half on the floor. Um, <laughs> yep, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely redacted. Um... Yeah, this this is redacted. Yeah. Oh, okay. That that's all. You don't know how much he'll hate you. You don't really care. You don't know when the nausea passed. You don't know when it will return. Okay. There's a handful of kudos on this and no comments. Our next one is number 18, Someone Like You by Mercy. This is a teen and up rating M slash M and strictly within Nathan Barley fandom. Author's Notes. Originally written for the Boosh Battle, Music Scuffle Here, Silent underscore Fields prompts, Prompt was the New Order song, Someone Like You, hence the clever title. This is the fic that spawned the road trip verse in all its prequel-ific glory. LJ Masterlist for this universe is here. Okay. All right, let's get into it. 
Fuck off, I can do it myself. That why you haven't had a bath since, well, the last time you tried to have a bath? Jones notably does not fuck off, just carries on swishing disconcertedly pink bubbles about in the tub. I've bathed. Running a flannel over your bits ain't the same thing, is it? Get it, get the fuck in. Jones is stronger than he looks. Dan's learnt and played rugby in school, so he manages to grab onto Dan's waist and haul him up in a way that gives Dan no choice but to be dragged into the bath. It's lucky he broke his leg, his left leg, or he'd have to have his head at the tap and to give the cast an open side to hang over. Lucky to have use of his legs at all, yes, that too. Won the fucking lottery with that one. Jones kneels at the end of the tub and scrubs Dan's hair with the fruity botanical stuff he brings home from Stanley Knives. Wet hands slipping over the knots in his neck and shoulders, and Dan gets, um, yeah, blank. Look what I found. Jones brandishes a yellow seven-inch unearthed from the millions of record crates that seem to spend their nights breeding and sneaking into positions calculated to bruise Dan as he tries to navigate the flat. Even though the haze of smoke and codeine through the haze, Dan knows what it is without needing to see the label. Fucking supergrass. The record that got him the job that ultimately got him into this state. Like all Dan's records, it ended up belonging to Jones at some point. You shouldn't smash it, Dan mumbles, but he doesn't think he's made himself understood because Jones dusts it off and drops it on a turntable. Dan wonders if it's possible to smother yourself with a pillow, but then the remember when nausea in his gut gets all twisted up in some slow electro new order, maybe, and Jones crafted scratches and squeals and blips that tear it to bits and paste it back together into something that sounds good again. Dan falls asleep. When he wakes up, he finds Jones at the end of the sofa, trapped by legs and plaster. There's a new drawing on Dan's cast, too. A sailor tattoo. Red heart over his instep. The scrolled banner across it is blank. Jones wakes Dan by depositing something into his lap. Dan blinks at it. There were two rules when he moved in here. Don't smoke crack, apparently a problem with the last housemate, and don't touch the decks or anything even sort of near them. The laptop he's now holding was also, was always part of that untouchable realm. What's this for? I seen you trying to write, like a kitten with a crayon you are. It's true. It doesn't work right-handed because Dan's wrist is so fucked and the cast gets in the way, and left-handed it comes out looking like acid test drawings. The words themselves haven't cooperated either, so it's just easier not to. Don't you need it? Jones gestures at the pristine white Mac crowning the no-man's land of his equipment. Poor old Alice. There basically shits herself whenever I try to edit tracks. Should be alright for typing, though. Dan's never known Jones to buy a new anything. When there's an old something, he can gut and rebuild. He knows it's a gift, and maybe an order to make to stop making excuses. I'm not up to much, Dan says anyway. Least you'll be able to read it. He is grateful that Jones doesn't tell him not to smash it. Jones retreats to his new toy. It can't have come cheap. Dan used to wonder if he was dealing, but then he found out what Jones actually makes on a proper gig. He's not doing for he's proper gig he's not doing for die jobs or as a favor. And it's not as though there's rent to pay. Dan finds one thing Jones hasn't moved off the computer. A folder of photos, scans of Jones' old Polaroids, mostly of the two of them. Dan, clean-shaven, and oh-so-life-hasn't-fucked-me-yet about the eyes. 
Jones with bright pink spiky hair pissed and grinning all across Europe, back when Dan used to do a regular series on other cities' music scenes, before Jonathan took over. Jones would dig up some old acquaintance to get him on a bill somewhere and go with him, and they'd spend their days frightening tourists and their nights fucking in shitty hotel rooms. Dan tries to remember how that stopped and finds he can't. Jones doesn't look up from his mixing to offer any clue, and Dan thinks of sleeping on trains with strawberry hair tickling his nose and the time they got caught in a rainstorm in Cork. He glances at the blank heart on his foot and starts typing. The cast on Dan's arm is replaced with a tight black brace. Jones wants to attach wires to it and make him look like a cyborg. Dan puts his foot down on that, the foot that's not still stuck in a cast for another two weeks, that is. At least he can sort of use his crutches now, and it's a relief to get about on his own. As much as he finds his, he misses the warm, solid Jones shape holding him up, he could probably manage washing his own hair now, but Jones hasn't suggested it. Do you remember Sammy Burton? Jones asks, with his hands deep in lather and Dan in Dan's hair. It's hard to concentrate like this, torn between the disappointment of the nice massage stop stopping and the increasing need for someone, sorry, for some awkward left-handed uh, blank under pink bubbles. <laughs> sort of. Bird tattoos on her tits? You would remember the tits. Fucking birds, Jones. Wearing little blue hats. It's hard to forget. Yeah, well, I ran into her down the market. She's got some sort of promotion company now. Wants to book me on a tour with the bikes. The bathwater might as well be freezing. What'd you tell her? To ring me in about six weeks. The date's marked on the weird old charity shop calendar in the kitchen. 3rd of November, 1973. It's when Dan gets to start walking properly, providing he does everything the doctors tell him. Thanks, Dan says hollowly. Is he meant to feel, feel guilty that Jones is putting it off because of him? Because mostly he pictures himself limping about the flat, smoking and eating pot noodle while the walls close in. You think Clara look after the house? Dan twists around so quickly that he bangs his leg on the side of the tub and pain shoots up to his hip. He swears and gets shampoo in his eyes, and it's pretty much the worst kiss ever, all soapy and backward, and Jones has been eating Marmite, but he's kissing back, and that's the important thing. Um, the sheets are all wet, and Dan needs a painkiller in a monumental fashion, and maybe that's why there's some kind of electro-symphony playing under his skin. His fingers remember the curve of Jones' spine like the first guitar chord they learned. Jones is sweet and sleepy and kissing Dan's collarbone, which is possibly the real cause of the symphony. symphony. And how did he ever push this to the back of his mind? You going to find another waitress? Dan asks, because everything at the back of his mind is coming forward. No discussion of it at the time, just Jones falling in love. That was over quickly, but they never went back. Not less you want a career change. Dan appreciates Jones not sp spelling it out, even though he thinks it would probably be alright if he did, actually. He grumbles at the loss of his human blanket as Jones sits up and is about to protest what appears to be a search for more condoms, but Jones produces a black marker out of the bedside table drawer. He uncaps it and bounces down the bed to Dan's foot, but then he looks up and pauses. Can I? So much for not spelling it out. Yeah, go on then. Dan sits still and watches Jones carefully letter his own name across the heart drawing. Yeah, it's all right. The front door clatters and Claire's voice echoes up the hall. Here comes the crowd, Jones mutters with a rueful smirk as he scrambles about for a pair of jeans. Claire's brought Chinese and a very twitchy pingu, 
and it doesn't frustrate Dan at all that he can't hold the chopsticks. A few kudos on this and no comments. I have to say, this is one of the weirdest uh, fandoms that I've ever done. You know nothing about this show, what it's about, or these two characters, um, these two male characters that are uh, basically in love with each other. Um, yeah, it's interesting, but we're already on our fourth result, which happens to be number 10, The Music Did, by Cat Love Power. We are just zooming through this. I, it looks like we're just gonna get in and get out with this one. I mean, yeah, so. Oh, wow, this is like a paragraph. <laughs> um, the music did not him. He was too proud for that. Too proud to tell another man that he loved him more than anything in the whole world. More than the little breadcrumbs on the morning table. More than his mismatched socks that he kept sewing back together. More than winter sun rays at dawn, just when he was going to bed after being up all night. More than coffee, and that meant everything. Maybe he should have told him that. He was sure Dan would have loved to be compared to a cup of steaming hot black coffee. This has five, six, seven, eight kudos on it and no comments. There have just been no comments at all on any of these fics. Here we go. This is probably going to be our longest result. Number 12, Landscape with Bastard Roses by Mercy. This is a mature rating, F slash M, and strictly within Nathan Varley fandom. Author's Notes. This came out of a couple of weird dreams I had a while back, and several months later, I finally finished it. Just to be clear, this does not belong to any universe of mine that you have ever met. Thanks for the reverend for cheerleading and threats. Let's begin. The House of Jones has a garden. Not a proper one out back with a shed, but it's a garden just the same. Someone, they still don't know who, brought Dan a rosemary plant while he was in hospital. What the fuck are we going to do with that? Jones asked when Claire brought it home, scraggly and neglected, in its little paper pot. It sat on a windowsill for weeks, the red ribbon around it drying and faded to washed out yellow pink in the sun. When Dan left, the first thing Claire said into the silence, after her, I can find somewhere else, and Jones' no need, was, I can't believe it's still alive. Jones felt a bit bad for it and took Claire up dark, cobwebby stairs through a maze of shop dummies and bird shit and a moaning, rusted door and into the sunlight. He didn't tell her about the night he'd found Dan up here and they sat together until sunrise without saying a word. What he told her was, I reckon it'll get more light out here. The rosemary plant looked like a twig in the old iron tub they planted it in, but it grew and kept growing, wild and rangy and pungent. Jones came home from Stanley Knives one day to find Claire stripping a stem into a pan of potatoes. She used too much and it tasted like soap and got stuck in their teeth, but they laughed about it and the next day Jones painted grinning pink and blue skulls around the sides of the wash tub. Dan couldn't or wouldn't come to the phone on his birthday. I'll be sure to tell him, Susan Ashcroft's voice warbled shakily out of the speakerphone. Claire slammed out of the house without a word and came back four hours later with a hoarse voice and a packet of basil seeds. They burrowed a bit of dirt off Calvin, borrowed a bit of dirt off Calvin, as Jones had dubbed the rosemary plant, the rosemary seriously verging on bush now, and planted them in a teacup, and Jones let Claire play her Belle and Sebastian CD without complaint or interference. Half, oh my... Well, um, it appears there is a business name here, but it is, it, the business name includes a word that I don't want to say, so 
we're just gonna skip over that. Half the blank staff quit to work for Nathan, only to be loudly and profanely sacked when Channel 7 decided Trash TV wasn't going to series. That day, Claire brought back a cutting from Sasha's rose, rosebush that went into a pickle bucket. When she came home with a box of tulip bulbs, Jones asked her what happened. I like tulips, Claire said. That more or less is how it came about. Now the staircase is free of spiders and not dark anymore since Jones spent an evening installing lights. There's a clear path the through the cluttered old storeroom, dummies and oxfem hats pointing the way with painted signs. It's got a face courtesy of Ned, who actually isn't so bad, definitely terminally stupid, but he he's a laugh and doesn't actually have total shit taste in music once you get him off the posturing with a few drinks. Jones still hasn't oiled the door hinges, mostly because when he sees Claire through the window, she's always so engrossed in whatever she's doing that she might jump out of her skin if she doesn't hear him coming. Today, she's pruning the rosebush, kneeling by the leopard print pot that's got Betsy looping around its middle in hot pink cursive. She looks up when she hears the door whine, and she's got a smudge of dirt on her cheek. Her hair is falling out of her out around her face from the clip she's put it up in and jones thinks she looks beautiful he smiles all right i'm trying to get this bastard to bloom again she strips off one of the gloves that always remind jones of his gran and her daffodils and quince jam and puts out a hand for him to help her up he Pulls too hard on purpose, and she stumbles into him, sun-warmed and sweaty and smelling of soil and green things. Betsy's a mills and boon woman, Jones says, needs her attention so she can swoon about. He kisses Claire on the forehead and licks the salt off his lips. Fuck off, she says, shoving him back. I don't care what you painted on there. It's called bastard. She takes her other glove off and wipes at her face with the back of her hand, but still doesn't get the dirt. Don't, she says, when he goes from wiping the smudge off with his thumb to brushing her hair back from her face. I know, Joan says, they both know. There was one very strange night a few months back when both of them were too sad and too drunk, but they both... Wait, sorry, I lost my place. But they both know that's not somewhere it's even possible to go. There are there are more tomatoes? They're amazing on toast. The scratch of the bread satisfying the itch of the roof of his mouth from the sweet acidity. Not yet, Claire wrings the gloves behind her hands. I talked to Dan. There's no point in trying to act like he's not bothered, like he's over it. How is he? Still Dan, she says, with a wry smirk that fades too quickly. Mom's driving him mad. He's found a flat. Flats mean signed papers and agreements. Flats mean that he'll come. He'll come home when he's better. Is Jones lying to himself? Claire looks like she knows exactly what it means, too. He's moving in two weeks if it doesn't fall through. Two weeks isn't much time at all when you need to change Dan Ashcroft's mind. Each room upstairs is like its own secret. Best Jones can tell. At least part of the place used to be a shop, a tailor's or a dress boutique, or one of the old family department stores that got done in or moved on from. A door with a tarnished brass plate reading private leads to what possibly used to be an office. There was never anything in here but a couple of dusty filing cabinets and a fat bolt of heavy unbleached cotton nearly as tall as Jones. When he's not painting something that has to stay where it is, he does he does it in here. He hasn't in months, though, and the easel with the dusty sheet over it looming in the center of the room like a misshaped ghost is the reason why. Jones pulls it off and lets it pool onto the floor, dust dancing in slivers of sunlight like little bits of glitter. And there's Dan's half-formed face smirking back at him. This was meant to hang next to one of Jones, a match set. Dan was used. 
Dan was used to Jones sketching him at odd moments, but he never knew why. I have to look at myself enough as it is, he said, when Jones hinted at the painting. I like looking at you, Jones replied, and it didn't stop him working on it. That was before Nathan Barley was part of Dan's world, before Jonathan showed his true colors, when he and Dan would get pissed together on random afternoons and Dan would laugh readily and wouldn't pretend to be asleep if Jones crawled into bed with him at five in the morning. It wasn't that he was ever particularly cheerful for more than a couple of hours at a time. It wasn't some overnight transformation. It was just that all the parts of his brain that made him scowl and hate got faded slowly up, and the ones that remembered it wasn't all shit got lost in the background. Jones didn't stop work on the portrait until the stray, the stray article. He couldn't picture Dan's eyes without that in them anymore, and anyway, the hair was all wrong. It was just as well. It was going to be a Christmas present, and Dan was gone by then. If not for Claire, the day probably would have passed without a word between them. Now he's not sure he can finish it. He's not quick enough to get the sheet back over it because Claire's in the doorway, breaking off whatever she was about to ask him to say, Wow, it ain't finished. I can see that, but it's... When did you do that? Ages ago, Jones finally looks at her properly. She's wearing a dress, a nice one. Fuck, it's Pingu's video tonight. I came to remind you, he's shitting himself, so I'm going around early. Three hours early? He's incoherent. There's going to be press there. He broke something while I was on the phone with him, and he actually started swearing. Have you seen the other one of these? She holds up a high-heeled black shoe. He has, but not lately. He remembers it breaking and being violently chucked into the Thames, while Claire drunkenly ranted about all women's clothing being bullshit. He remembers carrying her halfway home after she stepped on a piece of glass, carefully cleaning it and bandaging her foot in the bathroom, and the impulsive kiss to her ankle that led to one thing and another, and a ruined skirt, and her skittish and apologetic in a hungover light of morning. We can't do that again. Mind if I ask why? Because you're, you're in love with my brother. It's fucking warped. You threw it in the river. Oh, her cheeks color and she looks down. She remembers it too. Maybe it's a bit warped, standing here thinking about that, with Dan's one finished eye staring at them, wanting Dan to come back so badly it makes him sick even though he suspects it will break this. Are you going to finish that? Dunno if I can. He won't like it anyway. You're in a mood. Jones sighs and rakes his hands through his hair. Sorry, I'll be all right. Go peel Pingu off the ceiling. He stares at the painting for a while, for a long time, with Claire's perfume lingering in the air. Claire dreams of aphids clustered on the rose bushes' leaves like gathering snowflakes. She wakes in a cold, shaking panic with no sense of where she is, thinking she should see scrappy makeshift curtains and egg crate foam and Joan's face screaming out of out the time, the Art Nouveau version of her face, amongst smoke and lilies that Jones painted for her, suddenly foreign and wrong-looking on the wall of her not-so-new-anymore bedroom. She doesn't stop to dress, just rushes upstairs barefoot in knickers and an old t-shirt, past the decorated dummy sentries, and out onto the roof, straight to... Betsy slash bastard to plunge her hands into the bloomless branches. Thorns catch her skin, but the leaves are just leaves, clean and uninhibited. All right, Claire. Her relieved sigh turns to a gasp. Jones is there, sat on the rickety bench with a sketchbook in his lap, full of different angles of Dan's face, expressions she can nearly remember seeing at some point in a faded past. Easy, it's just me. Jones puts his drawing aside and moves over, patting the spot next to him. Claire sits down, and it's only then that she realizes how little she's wearing as her bare legs make contact with the weathered wood. Jones turns, wraps his arms around her waist, and rests his chin on her shoulder. 
His cheek rough and raspy against hers, she remembers how it felt on her neck and her breasts and thighs, feels the echo of a whimper rising in her throat at the memory of his mouth on her. He doesn't ask why she's run up here in her pants, and she doesn't ask why he's making a memory study of Happy Dan's. His fingers are black with graphite and leave muddled smears on the front of her shirt, idle patterns drawn over her stomach. She doesn't turn her head, just tilts it to one side, and Jones takes it for the invitation that it is, teeth and tongue open-mouthed on her throat. This is written really weirdly, and it's kind of hard to read. She doesn't touch him, not properly, just clutches at his knee and falls back against him, and there are wet gray streaks on the insides of her thighs, marking her like the paper that's got her brother staring up at her. He doesn't seem to judge, for once. It's still fucking warped. Joan searches out her lips with his, and she bends toward him unbidden. It feels like the talking they ought to be doing, but won't. It might only go on for minutes, but it feels like hours, slow and earnest and unmandering, un- undermanding. But the thought of him going back upstairs alone and what he might do there has the pencil smudges etched inside her, clenching and curling and drawing her over across his lap. Her hands fumble too much at his belt and they undo it, together soft laughter against her lips. They laugh their way through it about Claire getting beard burn on her tits and Jones getting splinters in his arse. They go quiet at the end and hold tight for a long time until their breath stops shuddering. Neither bedroom seems like the right place and they sleep tangled up on the sofa. Claire goes back to her own room in the damp chill gray of dawn and covers Jones with a blanket. Wind plows through London the day Jones leaves Claire's flowers bent at right angles and threatening to uproot. The house is half infested with burnt orange-colored ladybugs, the same shade he'd used for the shadows between the smiling crinkles round Dan's eye. Coming in through the windows and the doors and doors and biting when they fly at you. Jones said they weren't ladies and wanted to hover hoover them all up. Claire said they eat aphids and swept them back outside with a scraggly broom. They haven't talked about two nights ago on on the roof. There's maybe an understanding of not understanding. Claire goes to the station with him and doesn't pull back from an impulsive snog that's, that's a goodbye in maybe several ways. He loves her, but he loves Dan too. A fresh gale whistle, whistles through his ears down the platform, as though it might propel the train towards Leeds just that little bit faster. Claire tells him good luck and looks like she means it. He feels naked traveling with just the one rucksack, no flight cases to wheel about or record crates to worry over. Leeds is gray and damp and still there's no one to meet him at the station because no one knows he's coming. He follows Claire's directions, a half-mile walk and two buses, and finds himself in front of a red brick semi in a quiet street that might have kids playing football in the middle of it in better weather. He rings the doorbell and doesn't get what he was expecting. Dan's mum and having to explain himself. It's Dan and a drop jaw closing back up, eye and mouth corners working, and figuring and processing. And finally a soft, Jones. Dan Ashcroft is not good with surprises. All right, Dan. Old reflex, standby. A familiar smile only flickers onto Dan's face, replaced with worked-in brows and a frown. What are you doing here? Jones has never been one for presenting anything other than what he is and what he means. Came to bring you home, didn't I? He doesn't smile, and he reaches a hand out. Dan doesn't take it. You can't just... Jones waits for him to finish, but he's not going to. Fuck you, and you can't. You gonna ask me in? He doesn't, but he steps aside to admit Jones and lets him follow into a middle-aged, middle-class front room with floral sofas crowned by uninspiring paintings of landscapes. 
Dan belongs here about as much as Sid Vicious in an old pupil's home, and it shows in every angle of his body as he sits down. He belongs in a second-hand settee underneath scarf curtains and silkscreen art. He belongs in a sea of noise where he's the island of disquieting quiet, sorry, dissenting quiet, or the counterpoint and backbeat to the backspin, swears and, and scratch of pen and, on paper as inspiration. I've given up on smoking, Dan says, after a long silence. I've fucked your sister isn't really the right response just now, though it's going to have to be said. Well done, Joan says instead. It's stifling in here, like best behavior tea times in his grand's little little used parlor, which she even called a parlor. I'm not coming back. You fucking are. I'm fucking not. Why? Undone and fucking done in, Jones. I can't. The hell are you gonna do here, though? He's too good for here to be hidden away. Jones remembers Dan at 25, two fingers resolutely stuck up at mainstreams and trends and norms, a a literary worded, fuck off at the ready for anything objectionable that crossed his path. He'd been going to change things. He had changed things, and some enough for the better. But being Dan, he can only see the worse. Jones knows firsthand how hard it is to ignore the twat with shutter shades, shouting at you and missing the point. But he also knows it's possible to ignore in favor of what matters. Teach literature to, to Spoonie, sorry, to Spotty, ungrateful ASBOs. Maybe keep a couple of them from growing up to be total wankers. Write a book. You can do that in London. Dan looks back. Dan looks down at his hands. He's picked up a pen off the side table and is holding it like a cigarette. I can do less than fuck all in London. You just gotta stop letting those bastards. I have. I'm done with them. He'd imagined days ago, and even a bit on the doorstep just now, that he'd shut Dan's objections up with a kiss and would. And that would be the end of the argument, that Dan would say yes squashed together in a childhood bed amongst yelling Smith's posters and dusty school prizes. But it turns out the end of the argument is a photo of Claire on the mantelpiece, young and sneering and uncomfortable, in a formal gown between a gangly boy and a naff backdrop meant to conjure up Camelot. He can practically hear her pissing and moaning about the corsage pins jabbing her, and the white tea roses are a pale joke compared to what Betsy serves up, even if Claire pricks her fingers and pisses and moans about that too, as she cuts the blossoms and arranges them in jam jars. It's saying something that he's thinking about, he's thinking more about whether he's another, there's another round of blooms in store than about how Dan's hand feels in his when he takes away the pen and laces their fingers together, callous skin playing over the veins on the back of Joan's hand like remembering the way home without a map. There ain't a map. Jones only realizes he's saying it aloud when his words hit his ears. What? Dan says. Nothing. Dan used to massively take the piss out of him about that, now their hands just squeeze together. His other arms got less sense and pulls Dan close. And he tries to file away the feelings, the feeling of his hair getting caught in lazy stubble and the smell of day-worn cotton against Dan's neck. If they made a noise, it would sound like jangly guitars. Claire sounds like Northern Soul. He never would have expected to like either. Then... Sorry, there are other things he doesn't say aloud. They'd be off, there'd be off notes, train wreck. Dan kisses the crown of his head. They don't move for a long time, but Jones doesn't stay the night. It's a quiet goodbye, and nobody says they're sorry. It's not even dinner time when he gets back to London, and the fact that it's so soon means he doesn't have to tell anything and Claire doesn't have to ask. They get extremely pissed and wake up naked and they still don't talk about it.
but they don't get out of bed either. Jones frames the unfinished painting as it is, wraps it up, and puts it in the post to a new address neither of them has seen has ever seen the inside of. Ned comes over for dinner, Rufus and the skateboard in tow, for the last of the tomatoes mixed into a theoretically European dish, sorry, Ethiopian dish, that just tastes like a nondescript sort of stew. Nathan Barley's parents pay out 50 grand on his half to settle a libel lawsuit that doesn't stop him doing anything. Pingu shrugs and says there's no point when Claire suggests he bring one up himself. Betsy slash Bastard is pruned back for autumn, and the herbs are covered over with sheets to guard against an early freeze. Vintage pattern ghosts against fog, fogged pink sunsets that come earlier and earlier. In November, she harvests the last of them to be dried or given over to an ill-considered rosemary vodka infusion, Jones's idea. That's all right for cleaning countertops, but not suitable for drinking. Dan comes for Christmas and hugs Jones for so long that Claire leaves the room, but it's her mostly vacated one that he sleeps in on his own and on the chilly barren rooftop. Boxing Day morning, they find each other there, and his smile is calm and real enough when he says he's happy, and happy for her, and for Jones, and for them, that she's inclined to believe it. Come spring, she'll have her hands deep in potting soil, and there's already an old clawfoot bath that Ned and Jones and someone called Medical Steve had wrestled up the stairs. Well, happy birthday, Ned had said, falling in an exhausted sprawl against Clive's tub, waiting for whatever she wants to plant in it. More roses, maybe, she tells Jones. He, she half snorts her coffee when he asks if she'll name it gobshite. No, she says, but maybe idiot. This has a handful of kudos and no comments. Okay, so I decided to read one more. It's number nine, This Kind of Music by Cat Love Power. This is a teen and up rating, M slash M, and strictly within Nathan Barley fandom. Author's notes, I'm really not sure about this. It's neither really clear or really interesting. It's just a moment, some reflections from Dan's point of view. Sometimes Dan wonders what Jones thinks of him. They hardly ever talk. Jones is obnoxious, ever present, ever himself, except when he sleeps. Then he becomes so quiet it's frightening. He never moves when he sleeps. He never visibly dreams. Never mumbles something out loud. Maybe he dreams of silence. Joan's mind works in a bizarre yet brilliant way. He had explained it to him once, over a cup of coffee, one morning. Dan was up early, and Jones had spent the whole night up. He had said that he firmly believed he could hear colors and shapes and lights. You see, the way the sun reflects on the kitchen table there, he had gestured towards the streak of light between them on the ugly plastic tablecloth on the table, as if the rest was self-explanatory. He had shrugged. It talks to me. Objects, broken toys, and derelicts, they all have a little song to sing to Jones's ear. He merely amplifies and magnifies it, and Dan reflects in the dark living room in front of his last failure of an article, that maybe it's what he finds soothing in Jones's music. The fact that even if it's terribly loud and repetitive, and sometimes even appalling, there is always this tiny element of truth buried beneath the rest, lost in a roar of electronic noises. Jones is quite a poet, really. He just doesn't know any other way to express what he feels, except through noise, music. And Dan thinks, while he listens to Jones making noise from the other side of the room, happy and beaming and childish in his demeanor, that he himself is yet another broken object for Jones to try and find a deeper meaning to. Merely an experiment. Why would anyone care about someone like him? A bad writer, a journalist, prostitute. Words elude him. 
Tonight, maybe more than other nights, there is no wit in what he has written down so far, only hatred, loathing, and maybe a tiny bit of jealousy. But again, Jones isn't anyone. He wonders what sort of music he is to Jones, or maybe this isn't the way it works. Maybe he hasn't understood because he never listens carefully enough. The rare times Jones ever speaks to him, he doesn't listen. Always busy, always angry, always sad and forlorn. But Jan thinks he always listens to his music. It lulls him to sleep, it wakes him up. Sometimes he, sometimes not because it's too loud, but only because it has stopped. Then Dan would get up and get dressed and make sure Jones is at least sleeping on a couch. Once or twice he had found him sound asleep, propped up against the wall as if he had fallen asleep right there on the spot after hours of non-stop mixing, not even bothering to get to go anywhere near a proper bed. Dan would scoop him up in his arms, complaining that it was doing a number on his back, even though Jones really was quite light. He is all bones and nerves, like some demented jack-in-the-box, and yet he was lax and pliant in his arms, as if all the strings had been cut off. Jones doesn't eat enough, he thinks, as he watches his flatmate jump and dance and shout to invisible crowds. Of course, Dan would never show him that he cares, not when Jones is not passed out or sound asleep. Then his eyes fall on the ashtray with all the, the fag butts scattered around, and he realizes that he hasn't eaten himself since God knows when, and, he, and all he really craves right now is a sip of whiskey. Old and broken and dull, his song must really, but must be really depressing. He muses that maybe he is just a note in a world encompassing symphony only Jones can hear, a brass instrument instrument in the back of the orchestra, which goes quite unnoticed, something that is always there because it's convenient, but not really needed, disposable. There are a dozen journalists ready to take his place and write shit articles about hype St silliness. But there is only one Jones, so rare he doesn't even need a proper name, so flamboyant and manic and passionate and sincere and annoying, always here. Whereas the idiots come and go and always change, he remains the same and he believes in what he does. He doesn't do it for fame. Dan has realized after he met him, he is not a DJ because it's, because it's cool or popular but because it is a part of him. The search for the sound is, is, sorry, the search for the sound, the one that will make people understand how he hears and sees the world. It must be a pretty fucked up world to sound like that, so loud and aggressive and repetitive, and yet there is always this other layer underneath. The morning sun that strikes with the right angle in the kitchen, the small note that goes unnoticed, but which is here nevertheless, absolutely not important yet cru crucial. He looks up and Jones smiles at him, a toothy smile and dr a drunken smile, even if he never drinks while mixing. Dizzy on music, happy as a child, extremely aware yet ethereally optimistic. His exact opposite, Jones creates in a rather strange and noisy way. While all he does is destroying and corrupting things, what soothes Dan is that Jones seems somehow immune. He can hang around him for days on end and never get phased. Maybe it's better that he doesn't fully understand the mystery that is Jones. The way, that way, he can't corrupt him. He doesn't know what's on his mind, and he hopes Jones doesn't catch what's on his. Too depressing. Even the strongest walls can't crumble down, and he doesn't want to see what happens, not ever. You know what I like? The music has stopped. He realizes that, and Jones is pushing a strand of red-brown hair from his sweaty brow. Dan chooses to raise an eyebrow instead of trying to talk, in case there has been something else before that he didn't catch. I like, says Jones, crashing on the couch beside him, to watch the tension ebbing away from you. He wriggles his fingers in the air in front of him. I spin a web of sound, you get trapped in it, and then you feel better. Don't ever stop being you, Dan whispers, and that sound that sounds awfully like begging. 
I won't. A flash of white teeth, a swirl of hair, and he's back to his making noise until the sun rises again. Author's Notes I had written this fic in one go at night on post-its, and I've just found one of these post-its between two books cleaning up my room. I think I liked it despite the fact that the whole thing is a little pointless. Oh, and I feel f- and feel free to point out any weird sentence, word, expression, since English is not my native language. Also, it is unbedded. This has a handful of kudos and no comments. All right, well, that was the Nathan Barley fandom. I hope you enjoyed it. I still didn't really get any idea of what this fandom is about or anything. Um, That's generally how it goes. They don't really write these fan fictions for people coming into the fandom. They write it for people who are already in the fandom and know what's going on and the situations and all that. So we are just outsiders looking in at this and wondering what the hell we just read. But really, it wasn't that bad compared to other things we've read before. So yeah, if you have any idea of what you want me to read next, let me know. And uh, yeah, that's it.